Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production between the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. My name is Mark Bonica, and I am an assistant professor in the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy. Today's guest is my colleague, Dr. Vanessa Druskett. Associate Professor of Organizational Behavior and Management here at the University of New Hampshire. Vanessa studies and teaches about team emotional intelligence, helping organizations develop more effective norms and behaviors. In this podcast, we talk in detail about a few of her papers, particularly a Harvard Business Review paper she co-authored called Building the Emotional Intelligence of Teams, which I have included a link to in the show notes. This is the abridged version of the podcast. In the full-length version of the interview, we also go through Vanessa's intellectual journey from an early interest in social work to a PhD in organizational psychology and research on transformational leadership, self-managing teams, and what led her to the study of the emotional intelligence of teams. If you'd like to listen to the full-length version of the interview, please see our website, healthleaderforge.org, for the link. I hope you enjoy this interview, and if you do, won't you leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you may be listening. It helps other people find us. Thanks for listening, and here is Dr. Vanessa Druskett. Welcome to the podcast, Vanessa. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be here with you and your listeners. Your research has largely been around teams and the emotional intelligence resident in a team. So we'll probably build a bit off, and you, we already kind of briefly mentioned, you have, a, you have an HBR article with uh, Stephen Wolf um, called Building the Emotional Intelligence of Groups, and, uh, I, and I found it ungated on, on, on the web, so I'm going to hang that on the show notes when we're done okay, so we can great. talk about yeah. uh, So So folks want to look at that uh, and see a little more detail what we're talking about, they can, you, can, you can grab that off the show notes. Um, so what did you, so, so you've, you, you'd been working with transformational leadership, you've been working with um, self-managing teams. How did this come together to kind of influence or help create your theory about um, the emotional intelligence resident in groups? Okay. So back to my, my idea of um, individual skills, individual abilities not mattering all that much in a team. Um, and what really matters is whether or not the environment you create brings out the best in you. Okay. And so what I was interested in doing was creating this model. And, and this is what I had for my dissertation to begin with. And then we tweaked that model somewhat, um, was a model of the norms that allowed people to get to know one another and value one another, which brought out the best in people. Okay, so everyone was included. Keep in mind that these were self-managing teams we originally were studying. So it was really about knocking down the hierarchy and really using the resources in the team. And so I started doing some more digging around. And one of the things that I found um, in the literature, and, and by the way, one of the most interesting things about the emotion literature right now is it's linked to, to social neuroscience, right? Okay. I got to acknowledge that this is the, the, the most fascinating piece of this is how the brain works and all this. But it turns out that whenever we go into a group environment, we have these primal social needs that need to be met. And if they're not met, our emotion, 
or, or where we have uncomfortable emotion emerge. So we basically created a, a model that would enable people to be comfortable, have their social needs met so that their emotion would be um, at the service of positive outcomes in the team. Right. So I'm no longer worried about not being included, not being heard, not being understood. It turns out that people thrive um, and their endorphins go off when they're in an environment where they feel understood, um, seen, felt, heard and valued. They literally their endorphins go off. They want that. They crave that. So we basically help build an environment that does that with these norms, okay? And that's, that's the emotionally intelligent environment. So an emotionally intelligent environment brings out the best, views people as emotional beings. So there's a little bit of leap in, lo- in logic there, um, but that's how we argue it. So let's talk a little bit about some of the specifics that you covered in, in, the, um, uh, in the article. So you said – you had norms that create awareness of emotions and then norms that help regulate emotions. You had kind of two categories of norms. Mm -hmm. And then, so within the norms that create awareness of emotions, you, you were just talking a little bit about, you know, uh, one of them you have listed is interpersonal understanding. Mm -hmm. Um, So you were, that's the, that piece where you, I think where you were just talking about where, like, if I feel listened to and heard, then I'm going to feel more comfortable. Is that, Yes. Yes. And then the perspective taking uh, was the other piece there. What's that about? And why is that important for the, uh, at the individual level? Okay. So first of all, I have to tell you that we, the, that paper obviously was, was, was written in 2001 and it's kind of evolved since then. Okay. Sure. Um, But so, so let me see, I'm going to try to answer your question through the evolution. Um, even better if you can, if yeah, can, if you can give me the updated can, version. Can, that's, can, that's even better. Okay. Sure. So um, awareness of emotion is really awareness of individuals and people. Um, and it's that turns out that that interpersonal understanding, as we went off and studied it in many different organizations, becomes really, really important in teams. It was most strongly linked to performance of anything we studied in teams which piqued our curiosity. And so interpersonal understanding is awareness of what excites that person, what they're good at, who they are, um, who they are underneath it all, um, and not you know their initial presentation, right? So when you take time to really get to know that person, that emotional being as who they are, it begins to create that sense of, of, of acceptance of who I am. I can be myself here, right? And so that awareness. So we had three, I think we ended up in the end with three, statistically two, we looked at this statistically. In that awareness of emotion piece, we have um, interpersonal understanding, um, confronting members who break norms, and caring behavior. (laughs) Those three were the three that statistically fell in there. Um, I think perspective taking was in managing emotion, was it? So you had uh, perspective taking as uh, norms that create awareness of emotions, and then you had confronting and caring as norms that help regulate emotions. Okay, so it turns out that they don't, statistically, they don't fit in this awareness, um, 
um, and regulation um, clumps. You know, they factor analyze into individual level, team level, external level. So okay. um, interpersonal understanding, confronting, and caring are one individual level thing. Team self-evaluation, um, and we no longer, seeking feedback fell out. It was completely team self-evaluation and seeking feedback were one and the same. Um, creating resources for working with emotion, and I think proactive problem solving is underneath that. Those, those link together, although proactive problem solving also somewhat links to the external. Oh, and creating an affirmative environment. Yeah. Um, yeah, optimism. We now call that optimism. Um, those those link together, and then the final one is um, the external boundary. So that's how we talk about them now. Um, okay. So the columns still kind of stand, but it seems sounds like you've kind of mixed the the rows, if you will. Yeah, I don't really. I no longer think about them as being um, awareness and regulation. That's interesting. Thank you for reminding me of that. Maybe I should be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at least I should be remembering where anybody who reads the article they need to know that they, that's what they're thinking. <laughs> people, well, by the way, so, the article's been republished four times in books by HBR. Yeah, it's a yeah. it's a huge seller for them. <laughs> people like yeah, their- yeah. It's been and it, it's been cited more than a thousand times. So it's a it's had a lot of influence in the field. It has. It's of- been cited by a lot. Of, yeah, I get a lot of requests for it. Yeah. Um. So some some of this stuff that kind of so you were still thinking um, individual level. We've got norms. So for example, norms of confronting, right? So that's a tough one, right? I think most groups, most you know, most people don't like doing that, right? So how do you create? And and a lot of times when it happens, people get very defensive. So how does a how does a effective team deal with that then? Brilliant question, Mark. Brilliant question. So let me say this. First of all, I took a lot of flack for calling that confronting. A lot of people got really upset with me because it was as if I was advocating for people to be rude to one another. But in my original research, which had been done on the shop floor, the norm in was really confrontational. People would just, they knew each other so well that they, um, that they, but then they were softer for some people, a little bit harder. But the idea was you didn't let this stuff pass. You know, if somebody broke an informal rule, you didn't. And in the, in the not so good teams over and over, you know, I heard, well, I don't want to disturb them. I don't. So, um, so we, we, I, I kept it in there and I fought for it. Eventually we changed the terminology and let me, let me see if I can find what we're calling it now because, I've been writing about it and I should have it. Okay, here it is. We now call it addressing unhelpful behavior. Okay. <laughs> but we did, wow. Steve and I did a, a really good study of it. And what we found was that you really had to have in, uh, interpersonal understanding well honed in order to be able to do the confrontation. So you yeah. had to tailor essentially you have to tailor the confrontation to the individual. Okay. So this is what I'm teaching teams. Now I'm saying what you do is upfront, you clarify what's unhelpful behavior in this team. 
And you'd say, okay, well, showing up late is unhelpful. Not doing the work you said you were going to do is unhelpful. Cutting people off is unhelpful. Looking at your cell phone during the middle of a meeting is unhelpful. They list it all, and you, you know, you're going to constantly amend this. Um, and, and then you figure out a way you're going to confront people. And you know, it usually begins with a new team where you take someone aside and you say it. But eventually in the great teams, people get confronted right in the team. And, and so that's, that's the way I'm thinking about it now. I can tell you that there's nothing that ticks people off more than the unfairness of not confronting people when they break norms. Fair behavior, by the way, treating people fairly suggests that they're valued. So let's come back to this social need. I mean, this is literature. This is all in, in, the, in the psychology literature. That the importance of fairness, even animals know when they haven't been treated fairly. Okay? And it's, a huge, it's, it's, it's atavistic. It's primal. And um, what we now know is that when you are treated unfairly, you don't feel valued. And so this is an important norm. You need to be, be basically give people a heads up ahead of time and say, we're going to call you out if you do this. And then you need to treat people fairly. There's a, there's a, uh, uh, I'm not, uh, I, I don't know the um, experimental economics literature uh, as well as I probably should, but I know they're, they're in the experimental economics literature they've done um they've done games with you know uh that uh where people um got treated unfairly and then they um and in the next round they were willing to sacrifice like higher payoffs for themselves to punish the people who treated them unfairly yes. um so even though they wound up with less um they're all in punishment yeah, yeah. That's what you get to <laughs> retribution. It's all about retribution when you're treated on. Right. I mean, it's real yeah, affront. Yeah. It's a major affront to a social need. And your social need is to feel valued. It's to feel like you matter. The label that is used in the literature now that I've been using lately is you want to feel like you belong, that you matter to this team. People are going to care for you. You're in an environment where we care for one another and we have each other's backs. People thrive in those kind of environments. So when you talk about norms, how much of those norms are uh, emergent, uh, meaning they come as a result of the uh, repeated interaction within a team, and how much of them are formal and instituted uh, in your in your research? Great, great. You, you, you're so smart. <laughs> These are great questions. It's fun talking to you. Um, Mostly because I sat in your class and listened to you talk about so this. Maybe. So maybe. <laughs> but actually, I'm drawing on, but what's interesting about this, I just want to, is, and I don't know if you're familiar with the institutional economics literature at all. Oh, really? um, but there's a, yeah, so there's a, I mean, so that's, that was actually a big area of my study back when I, uh, when I was doing my PhD. And so hearing a lot of this, a lot of this discussion about yeah. norms and emergence yeah. is a, it's a big theme in that literature. Sure. So it's just kind it's of interesting. Awesome. Interesting. I'm going to have to write that down and take a look at it. I have looked a lot of game theory and things like that. Um, yeah, I, I think you might like, uh, Doug North's work. I'll send you, uh, great. Uh, Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. He's got, yeah. Okay. Um, anyway, let me okay. let's let's hear your version of it though. All right. So, <laughs> so emergent norms versus formal yeah, imposed norms. Yeah, yeah. So we we actually do, do, uh, think about them as descriptive or prescriptive norms, right? So you are we just describing what has emerged, or are we prescribing what what you're going to be? 
So um, first of all, norms always emerge. Behavior is never random in a group. Um, at the very first meeting, we know important norms emerge. Um, but we also know that norms can be prescribed. You can change, you can manage a team's culture by intentionally um, uh, defining and supporting specific norms, reinforcing certain norms. And so a lot of um, great leaders know this. They, they, norms come from values and they, they, they call out behavior that's inconsistent with the norms. Okay. And so they define carefully. This is the intervention that I, that I most teach for, for team leaders, which is to come up with a set of norms, you know, and I offer my norms from my research. And, um, but I also say, you know, you got to pick norms that work for you, that work in your environment. But, but the idea is that you want to enforce them and you want to, you know, reinforce them. Um, it, so it's not my idea. Basically what we're now learning a couple things. Well, let me, let me step back before I say that. Um, Norms come from the top down. They're not egalitarian. People with power define the norms. So if I look at my undergraduate groups, I look at the kids with the greater status in the team. They're the ones that primarily, unless someone intervenes around them, they will, um, they will define the norms. And I saw this a lot in my original work when I lived for two months in that organization. And in many of the really lousy self-managing work teams, the people with the status to define the norms were people who were bullies or, you know, not, did not have, um, you know, moral high ground, um, were not egalitarian, didn't care about anybody but themselves. Um, so anyway, um, and a lot of norms um, just emerge and nobody realizes how powerful they are until you tell people, like, let me give you one norm that, that I talk a lot, of, a, a lot about because it was a powerful intervention that I created in a, in a team once. When people pick up their phones to check their, their texts in the middle of a meeting, like I'm doing right now to you. Yeah. Vanessa's showing me her phone. Yeah. <laughs> This is going to be audio. Okay. <laughs> they, they don't do that indiscriminately. They only do that when certain people are talking. All right. So the status hierarchy, it's the higher people in the status. You'd never do that for people who are high in the status hierarchy. However, it's you only do that when people who are lower in the status hierarchy start to talk. All right. But the norm is you can pick up your phone. Um, so who sets those norms? It's always the powerful. They don't even notice it. They don't even notice people. So if you would say, hey, people pick up the pick up the phone in your team, people in the higher status say, no, they don't. They do not. Because, because they don't when this high status person is right. talking. Right. Okay. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and, it's, and this is the kind of stuff that creates problems in a team. So what we now know from research is that people that are treated as if they don't matter, they don't belong, they're not part of the one that's cared for they have really bad remedial behavior. They lose control of their emotions. All right. And people always say to me, but you mean, you just have to take it. You can't fight back when people treat you like that. You just have to take it. Unfortunately, when you fight back, it doesn't help unless, unless someone with high status signals to the group that they want you in. It's a fascinating line of research. You have no idea. And so yeah. um, it's, it's fascinating. But you, so anyway, what I, what I advocate is getting, getting to know one another, creating norms that are quite clear, 
uh, and you know, blah, blah, blah. You get the rest, right? Yeah. You know, what's interesting hearing you talk about the getting to know each other. So one of the projects I've been working on for the last couple of years is, um, and I think I've probably told you about this, is I've been interviewing um, former military leaders who were leaders in the healthcare, the military health system, who retire from the military. So with the idea that, you know, they're, they've spent 20 plus years in the military in that system. So they're, they're, pretty institutionalized. Mm -hmm. uh, and they leave that system, uh, retire and go to become a, a leader in a non, non-military civilian healthcare system sure. someplace. Sure. So not associated with the federal government. Yeah, fascinating. Um, and one of the most common things they talk about is this getting to know your uh, employees and getting to know the people. It, it is a really profound norm in the military that leaders know their soldiers, sailors, whatever, uh, airmen, Marines. Um, and if you don't, if you don't know their children's names and how old they are, and I mean, just a lot of stuff, you know, um, you know, that's a, that's a norm in the military. And if you don't know that stuff, you're a bad leader in the military. Um, you know, and you come out into the civilian and these folks come out into the civilian market and they're just, they're just kind of taken aback yeah. because that's not actually acceptable. Like you can't, you know, like a couple of them are like, I can't even legally ask people some of those questions, you know? Yes. Uh, yes. And, and so that's one of the things that they, they really struggle with is that, you know, um, the intimacy that leadership had in the military versus what it has in the civilian environment. And it probably varies from, you know, and there's probably different ways of getting that information and so forth, I imagine. But it's a, it, that was triggering as you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, that's fascinating. That. I never heard that about the military, but it makes sense to me. I mean, whenever I have students who've been in the military in my MBA classes, they are so, po- so powerfully positive around that kind of issue about getting students, getting to know one another, the community. Cause I always try to build a community in my class and um, it's so much easier when there's a military person in there who's part of that. Mm, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Someone's had a leadership role before. Uh, it, and it's a norm, right? So that's a, like, like yeah. getting to know each other. And it's really interesting that, you, and so that's an important norm for, for your, for your model. Then, it's to, critical. To, it is the most important because and be, I, I just come back to the social need of, of people wanting to be known, wanting to belong, you know, belonging. People don't really understand the, the belonging. I mean, the opposite of belonging is being rejected or excluded or ostracized. And people really get that. Nobody wants that, but you know, there's long, they're actually two different, two different things, but they're strongly related. Um, you know, when you, when you don't feel like you belong, you're always on the edge. You're always on the edge of feeling excluded. Yeah. Yeah. And as, as social animals, as, you know, going back to your woolly mammoth example, I mean, there's a fair amount of evolutionary psychology, you know, discussion of why, you know, what distinguishes homo sapiens from, you know, uh, whatever the, I, I'm, this, I'm a little outside my field here, but, you know, prior generations of, you know, uh, uh, pre-humans is that, is that um, our, our, our brain size increased in order to process the, however, was it 11 million signals per right, right, right. second? Yeah, or yeah, yeah. 
right? Mm -hmm. It was precisely to be able to handle that social, that, that complex social data that's constantly coming in. Yes. And it's what enables us to behave in more effective ways than our predecessors yes, did. Yes, indeed. It's required. It's, it, it, it enables us to pass our genes on, but it also enables us, our communities to be stronger. So that we pass our genes on. So it's, right. we, we, we maintain our belonging in, in the, in, uh, because if we were kicked out of the tribe, we were dead. We couldn't pass our genes on. And right. um, it makes a stronger community that can go on and, and, and survive as well. And blah, blah, yeah. blah. But, uh, but to be rejected or to be pushed down the hierarchy has a direct oh. impact, right? That, that base brainstem level kind of fear gets triggered, right? It is really bad. It, it, I mean, it's, it's like physical pain. I mean, the, the brain lights up in the same place as physical pain does. And if you feel rejected, you know what, what helps it? Take two Tylenol. <laughs> does it really? Does that really? It reduces your oh feeling. It reduces your feeling badly about yourself. Prescribe that to my social pain. pain. Yeah, prescribe that for heartache. Uh, I yeah, guess. For heartache. Then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so. Um, in your in your paper, um, or it's a chapter actually with uh, Wolf, Komen, and Messer, you take this idea of emotionally competent groups and their norms mm -hmm. that builds social capital, which then builds a task focus task focused processes, which then leads to team effectiveness. Can you talk about that kind of construct a little bit? Is that something you're still working with, and is that still valid? Because I know this is also like. 15 years old too, but yeah, it is. I'm thinking about it a little bit differently now, but yeah, absolutely. So um, the way I think about it these days is that we're asking a lot more of our teams and we can even, well, let's talk about, um, for example, let's, let's bring up in a healthcare setting teams in a hospital. Mm. Okay. Great. So we ask, we're really asking a lot much more of teams than we ever have in the past in the sense that the, what they're, the information that they have available to them is, is um, uh, much larger, you know, to, there's information overload um, and um, the, the problems are more comp complex than they've ever been. Um, and there's so much information. It's much more difficult for individuals to make decisions without a team. All right. So I'm assuming, and this has been my assumption of the medical environment, that if you've got good people around you helping you make a decision, whether it's a team of doctors and nurses, et cetera, et cetera, helping you, we're all looking at different pieces of information that matter. I mean, we now, the problems and the analysis and the weaving in and out of all this information is, is much more complex than it used to be. Um, the dilemma is that Coming back to the economics literature, people are wary of teams. Teams are threatening. Oh, okay. Teams can be threatening because you have this idea that you can be excluded. Okay. Huge literature in the psychology literature about um, people not sharing their information these days, not sharing everything they know for fear of stepping on people's toes for fear of, for many different reasons, you know, one of the reasons why psychological safety is so important these days in all these environments is that despite the fact that they need this information more than ever, the world 
in teams is very scary with all these different hierarchies, right? Besides the fact that a lot of the information that I have, if I share it with you, it's no longer mine. Okay. If I could just tell you, I mean, there is this fascinating paper about how much information people will actually share. And the people are so smart. They only share as much as everybody else is sharing and no more. The level at which everybody else is sharing because your information is your power. Right. Um, and so there's a lot of situations where we're asking a lot of people, but there are tripwires. You can step on the doctor's toes and say something to get you in trouble. Right. We all know this. So you can form with what the doctor, the hierarchy, you could lose your job if you um, or your ability to be in the emergency room. If you're not following orders by these doctors, you could share all your good information and then the other nurses or the others could have it. And then they've got what you've got, your secret way of doing this or that. Right. And so there's a lot of disincentive. Uh, you know, it's being part of a team is what we call a mixed motive task. Right. Okay. Come back to the. And so my argument, the argument that I'm making now is that you have to create an environment where people feel like they belong and they're part of something important and that they have some control over the environment in order to get them to fully embrace the task at hand and to give more, the more pro-social, more pro-social information. So they're not thinking selfishly, they're thinking pro-socially. So coming to the task behavior, if you want people to really give to the task, don't be naive and assume they're just going to do it without creating an environment that's conducive to this. Is that making sense? I know I'm kind of it does. Yeah. explaining this. So, these nor so how do we create these norms that, right, because it comes back to the norms. It comes back to the norms um, where you create everybody's feeling, feeling um, you know, like they – they are respected and part of the whole, right? We, we can talk about the specifics there if you want, but um, which um, gets them out of their self-focused or their fear, right? Makes them feel more psychologically safe and gets them to then contribute their best information, their best ideas, because they're part of something and they contribute more to the task, right? And then that makes If you see, yeah, so if you see, if you see hanging on to information as a self-protective measure, then that, um, then that psychological safety is really important, right? So, cause you're not going to let go of all of your information if that disarms you. Yes. And let me tell you that I've been reading about this for years in the psychology literature, in the economics literature. Um, but until I got out there and started consulting with teams, I had, I had no idea how bad it was out there. So in terms of people holding on, not sharing stuff, and it's really both out of fear and out of um, being strategic. So the fear is I have to maintain my power. So it is often fear. I've either, either, either I don't want to step on someone's sh shoes or I, I lose my, my status or I lose my job, or and I also have to maintain my power. And so there's a lot of... Um, of um, partial in, very smart getting in there. I, I contribute just as much as everyone else. I know how to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's yeah. Um, feigning, feigning is what I call it now in my writing. They're feigning contributions. 
Um, and they're doing as much as everybody else. And they're saying the right thing and they're doing the right thing and they're saving their butts. They're saving their jobs, you know, um, and but they're not really in there giving their whole. And so what I found is that if I can do interventions with these teams, it's talked about in the it's talked about in the like one of my favorite books that recently came out. Oh, I don't think I have it here. Is about a, a, a team coach that it's called the trillion dollar coach. Okay. Have you heard of it? I have not. Okay. Team coach that worked with Steve Jobs, he worked with Apple, Microsoft. They call him the trillion dollar coach because he coached the teams for all these great leaders. And what he did was he built, what they're saying is that, we, I mean, we all know Steve Jobs was a jerk, right? If he hadn't right. had a coach coaching his team, making everybody feel like they were belonging, getting people out of there, out, getting people out of being selfish and not worried about conforming, they never would have created the great things that they did. Wow. Yeah. And he, this coach argued that you have coaches for individuals, you know, you have coaches for sports teams. What makes you think you don't need a coach in a, in a, in a, a company? And my argument is you don't necessarily need a coach. You need a leader who thinks of themselves as a coach and who uh-huh. creates the environment that enables people to be this way, right? Blah, blah, blah. So is that, okay, am I, I, you immediately made me think, are you coming back to your self-managing teams idea then is that because that's what that sounds like that sounds like of like some you have to let go of a lot of control you have to still be in control you have to recognize your control as a leader so you but you have to um and you have to enforce the norms but you have to let the team help you know what the norms are that need to be created right um because you don't see them because nobody picks up the phone when you're when you're talking right so you let them, you help them, let them tell you what's needed and you continually tweak it, right? With this team self-evaluation continually and, and you help them feel, um, and you give them a lot of control, but you know, you still have to be there ready to um, be the leader when you need. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not a huge proponent of self-managing teams anymore. Oh, okay. What I'm a okay. proponent of is, is, is leaders who give up control, you know? who are willing to give up control and step in only when the team needs them. And behave more like a trillion dollar coach. Behave like a trillion dollar coach, behave like a transformational leader um, and not be overly controlling. Yeah. Which is hard for doctors. Okay. So we've been, so let's, let's uh, kind of, uh, uh, I wanted to make that kind of final leap. Um, uh, I've gotten to know you over the last couple of years uh, because uh, we've both been involved with the New Hampshire physician leadership development program that's being run at, at UNH out of the Paul College. Um, and so you uh, and I got to watch you uh, teach a number of, of seminars to a group of physicians who um, were coming to learn leadership skills so that they could uh, move from clinician to clinician leader. Um, so what have you learned um, uh, about you know, like physicians and their, um, and the healthcare system through that experience, um, uh, and what kind of leadership they need uh, sure. to learn. Sure, 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 sure. So well, let me first say that the, the, the group that we're, that we're working with is a self-selected group. So these are people who want to move into leadership or are, are being encouraged. And so they're already a group of people who are not, I think, so hard to work with. 
Um, but I've heard horror stories. You know, one of the things we know, and this has been true, I've worked with a lot of engineers, a lot of, um, but there are certain um, jobs. I mean, to become a doctor, you have to do so well on cognitive tasks that you have not honed your emotional intelligence, right? Um, you haven't had to hone your emotional intelligence and your, your ability to, to, um, to empathize. And, you know, um, and I think that the system, the system, just like it does for lawyers, I've also worked with lawyers and lawyers are really uh, hard to work with um, because they're, they're rewarded um, for being better than other people. Right. Good judgment skills. Um, So, um, Anyway, this group that we've been working with, they really get, they really get it. So one of the pleasures of working with them is how smart they are. If you give them an argument, they get it and, and they're motivated to want to take it on and learn it. And like no other group I've ever, I've ever worked with. Um, so first of all, I want to say that the dilemma is that they're taught and, and, and it's our, it's our friend, um, it's our mutual buddy. What's his name? Neil, Neil Meehan, who, who told me this. And so this is, I know this from Neil. They're trained to make, to, to know that, that, that they are the person who stands between death and life. They have to be the decision maker. They, they cannot shirk their responsibility. They have to know what matters. And so they have a hard time letting go of control. And they're trained that way and they're rewarded for that, right? As they're, as they're developing. So to me, the biggest challenge is not their motivation to want to do it with this group or their ability to get it or to be necessarily emotionally intelligent for this group, but it's the willingness to let go of control. Let in the information from the team, right? So where have they shown hesitancy to, to let in the team? So I've been working with them to examine the norms in their teams. You know, all, all these folks have are, are leaders and they take the model with the norms and they go and they assess their, the norms and they come back. And, you know, some of the norms are things like um, um, a team self-evaluation or, you know, allowing the team to have a little more control than the leader has. Right. Um, and, they come back with a read on the norm, which is more them in control than the, than the um, than the team members being in control. You know, it's a very hierarchical environment. Yeah, and their training perpetuates that, right? Yeah, and it's exactly the kind of environment that needs people to be rewarded for speaking their mind, right? Right. I mean, I've you know, and we have. We, I, I speak as if I was still in healthcare. Um, I mean, the there we are trying um, in healthcare. I know we are trying to create better opportunities for people to speak up, particularly in you know um, you know pre-surgical situations. Every they, they we have a uh, they now have a formal uh, timeout where they, you know, everybody has to agree that this is the patient and this is the thing we're doing and which sounds a bit silly, but you know, there's a real problem with wrong site surgeries and, and all those kinds of, uh, those kinds of things. And it, you know, when you are a patient in that situation, it seems like they're playing some sort of game, but it really is a, um, 
it's it's meant to be a norm that allows people to speak. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. I think it's really so powerful. A, I think it's really positive. Yeah, yeah. I think that's working really well. well. Yeah, I would say. Although I I just had some interesting experiences with my dad in a hospital, and um, you know my eighty nine year old dad has recently had surgery and has been in and out of hospitals, and it's been fascinating to be um, a fly on the wall while these things are going on. Yeah. Especially now that you've seen and uh, interacted with with these, these leaders, yeah, not not with the hospital that we've been working in. That this is he, he he's uh, no no right up. right yeah. different hospital yeah and to see but, the hierarchy at play see the hierarchy yeah, and yeah. the and just the, the whole all, all the way on down yeah yeah huh. well thank you so much for your time today I appreciate it it's been a lot of fun yeah it's been great fun for me too Mark thanks for inviting me I'll see you soon I hope you've been listening to the Health Leader Forge a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community and we'll talk with you again soon.